Well, good morning and welcome again uh, to Redeemer Baptist Church. My name is Theo. For those of you that are on and don't know me, um, I'm an elder in training and a church council member at large. We're going to pause today on our normally scheduled sermon series called Get Wise for some training on prayer. Today, I prepared a devotional from Paul E. Miller's book titled A Praying Life. Um, most of what I have today is actually direct from the book. So if you haven't read it, I'd highly recommend it to you. And if you want to read it, please contact myself, Jason, or Pastor Chris, and we will make sure that you get a copy. So what's the book about? We don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to kind of fly through it with a very high level overview. And if you want to know more, uh, I suggest you read it, or I guess you could talk to one of us also. <laughs> Um, so Miller um, starts the book with this, um, this question, what, do, what good does it do? And, and the conflict that he puts out is that the, the truth here is that our sin separates us from God. And so especially in America, we believe that our own abilities or our own productivity get us what we want. And so talking with God can seem like we're wasting time. And our frustrations are even more heightened when we read in scripture that God already knows what we want. Um, and, and again, or, or if we're not sure what, that we can even ask him for what we want. So what Miller does, is he walks us through what prayer ought to look like. So we don't feel frustrated when it comes time to pray in this section called, where are we headed? So first, um, what he says is prayer ought to feel more like a good dinner with a friend. Um, in Revelation 3.20, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. Well, you wouldn't um, eat while focusing on conversation. You would focus on your guests. The idea here is that most people pray while focusing on prayer, but they should be focusing on God. It's kind of like driving while focusing on the windshield rather than the road. Mm. We can also focus on the wrong thing by thinking that God is going to fix our busy life. Um, learning to pray doesn't really offer us a busy life it offers us a less busy heart. In the midst of the outer busyness, we can actually develop an inner quiet in prayer. And because we're less hectic on the inside, we have a greater capacity to love. And if you're busy in the right ways, it drives us to be more busy, which in turn drives us even deeper into a life of prayer. And so a less busy heart ought not to drive prayer either. Rather, a needy heart is a praying heart. So dependency on God is what drives prayer. So let's uh, take a minute to talk about de dependency. If we ought to be dependent for prayer, we can learn something from children. After all, who is more dependent than a child? Uh, in Mark 10, 15, it says, um, Christ is saying here, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The problem with adults, adults is that we try to fix ourselves up and personal pr prayer becomes one of the last great holdouts for our legalism. A child, on the other hand, comes to its parent with its weariness, with its distractedness, and its messiness. One example of our messiness is our words. Kids often have abstract first words like boo-boo or baba, and we just kind of laugh and we give them what they want because we, we know what they mean. Uh, in, in Galatians 4, 6, uh, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirits of his son into our, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Two words, Abba, Father. Simple prayers. 
when it comes to prayer, uh, we, we just need to get the words out. We don't need extravagant prayers. God knows what we mean. Another way that he puts, puts out is uh, that we can be more dependent on God is by taking the time to be with him. Every minute spent in prayer is one less minute where you can be doing something quote unquote productive. When we don't take the time, we can become anxious and we can take a godlike stance in our own lives, occupying ourselves with things that are too great for us. So the act of praying means that you have to rely more on God. And this is good. In uh, John 15, 5, we're reminded that apart from Christ and God, we can do nothing. Our helplessness is what makes prayer work. As, as Jesus reminds us, we can't do life on our own. We need his help. What are you actually accomplishing without prayer? Nothing. Um, they, uh, there's another facet here too. Not only can we do nothing apart from Christ, we can't even pray without Christ. It says here uh, in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the spirit helps us uh, in our weakness for we uh, do not, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Jesus not only guarantees that prayer gets through, but his spirit also transforms the prayer. And so Miller concludes the section in this way, a praying life isn't simply, that's a key word there, isn't simply a morning prayer time. It's about slipping into prayer at odd hours of the day, not because we're disciplined, but because we are in touch with our own poverty of spirit, realizing well enough that we can't even walk through our neighborhood or show up to work without the help of the spirit of Jesus. So what keeps us from being childlike? This, this next section is titled Learning to Trust Again. The, the opposite of a childlike spirit, Miller says, is a cynical spirit. Our reality is that we don't actually trust God. We ascribe evil intentions to God and we ascribe evil intentions to others because really they're our intentions. In other words, cynicism looks for the cracks in Christianity rather than for Christ. We can't really be optimistic when it's rooted in the goodness of people or if it's rooted in a God of our own making. That form of optimism collapses quickly when it confronts the dark side of life. We make the jump from optimism to cynicism so quickly because we're not grounded in a deep abiding faith that God's in the midst of the issue, no matter what the issue is. We're looking for pleasant results and not deeper realities. And so Miller suggests Thanksgiving rooted in the gospel as an antidote to cynicism. Thanksgiving looks reality in the face and rejoices at uh, God's care. It replaces our bitter, cynical spirit with a generous one. And we can be thankful that God didn't spare his son and graciously gives us all good things. That leads us to the next section. If we're going to learn how to pray without cynicism, then we have to first learn why we're cynical in the first place. Miller's suggestion is that the enlightenment actually changed how our culture thinks. It defines religion and prayer by extension as not real. First prayer is defined as phony and then it feels phony. Yet our God manifests himself uh, in the face of the laws of the universe. It, it, he's big enough to transcend those laws as well. His spirit is vastly superior to that of man. In the face of God, we, we ought to feel humility, even when we're presented with this enlightenment thinking. We can pray with humility rather than with cynicism that our God can't or won't bend nature to his own will. 
Sometimes, though, when we think of God being big enough to transcend the laws of the universe, we often think that God is too big for our prayers or that maybe we're not important enough for him. This is one reason that we struggle with prayer. We don't just think that God, or we just don't think that God would be concerned with the puny details of our lives. It's no wonder God uh, or Christ tells us to be like little children. Little children aren't daunted by the size of their parents. They go to them regardless of their size. Thinking of God as too big can also be a cover-up. We don't like to see God too close, especially if God's a deity we can't control. We have this primal, primal fear of walking with God in the garden naked without clothing. We're a lot more comfortable with God at a distance. But we can't open ourselves up to God without surrendering our will to God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven from Matthew 6.10 is actually kind of scary. But once we surrender our will... We can have increased intimacy with him like Christ and by Christ. Yet God doesn't want us mechanically praying for his will either. When we over-spiritualize our prayer, it suppresses our natural desire. When we stop being ourselves with God, we're no longer in real conversation with God. We're being superficial. Jesus is a good example when he prays that he will not drink the cup of his father's wrath. Jesus neither suppresses his feelings nor lets them master him. What do we get with a praying life? Essentially, we lose our kingdom and we get his. Let's see how scripture strikes a balance here. Whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. John 15, 16, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James 4, 2 through 3. In our prayers, we often create and separate two selves, a spiritual self and a material self. We mechanically pray with only the spiritual self that that God gets what he wants, and we don't pray with our material self, which is for what we want. But to abide in God means we allow God to use our material needs to draw us into our soul needs. Our great struggle in life here is not trying to discern God's will necessarily. It's trying to discern and then disown our own will. Prayer is the positive side of the surrendered will. As you stop doing your own will and wait for God, you enter into his mind. You begin to remain in him, to abide. So we've discussed how to trust like a child, how to cast off cynicism and ask our father for good things. Now we're going to learn how to live and our father's story by surrendering our will. First, we want to be very sensitive to God's will so we can surrender to it. Even just a heart that's a little bit bent can get very far away from God. Miller uses the example, if a ship is off by a few degrees, it's imperceptible at first, but over time, it becomes a vast distance. Miller suggests that when we get too far off course, we end up in the desert. And the hardest part of being in the desert is that there's no way out. And God takes everyone through a desert points in their lives. He does so because our suffering burns away the false selves that are created by cynicism. As Christ says, whoever loses his life will keep it. When we don't receive what we pray for or desire, it doesn't mean that God isn't acting on our behalf. Rather, he's weaving his own story. He's removing your surrendered will and he's replacing it with something good, which is himself. Tied to this idea of the desert is the biblical lament. Uh, Miller says that the emptiness of the desert drives a lament. Miller does a great 
uh, overview of Lament. I wish we had more time to discuss it, but I'll just give you a quick summary. Miller starts by saying that a biblical lament brings together reality and promise. It's filled with faith that simply takes God at his word. Think again of a child. If you haven't done something, the child reminds you, for example, you said you'd buy me ice cream. Why haven't you? Right? In the same way, we can say to God something like, you said you'd remove sin and sickness and death. Why haven't you? You guys get the picture here? A lament connects God's past promise with our present chaos, and it's hoping for a better future. You make a case uh, sort of using passion and reason, and it's filled with faith, and the tone shifts from a, a passionate asking to a quiet repentance when God asks you to wait. This waiting in the is the is the desert, and waiting is the essence of faith, which provides the context for our relationship with God. When we hang during ambiguity, we get to know God. God reveals Himself in the desert. So, if we know the past promise and we have present chaos, what's the hope that we have for a better future? The gospels are hope. The gospel's good news because God broke the power of evil at the cross. And so we can look at our cynicism and laugh. Which leads me to the author's last point of this section. When we break through the cynicism, um, we have joy. Miller writes, if we pursue joy directly, it slips from our grasp, grasp. But if we begin with Jesus and learn to love, we end up with joy. In Philippians um, one, three through four, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. There's a whole other section um, here at the end of this book about praying in real life with all sorts of helpful practices, but you're going to have to read the book for that. Um, so now we're going to have an opportunity to um, break off into smaller groups and pursue joy in Christ through prayer. Uh, I think Jason's going to go ahead. I think he has some groups um, pre-selected for us. And then we'll get to apply everything that we just learned.